You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad we're together this morning to worship our Lord and to hear from His Word. So, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. This is the text that the Lord, in His providence has given us to focus on this morning as, uh, as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. Now, before we read and seek to understand and apply the particular doctrine that's found in this text, let's first recite our corporate memory verse for the month of October, and it can be found in the book of 1 John Chapter 5, verse 20. 1 John 5, 20. Hopefully you've begun to read and reread this verse a couple of times per day. That would be the expectation with these memory verses each month. Do this a couple times per day during the month. And prayerfully, this has begun to set into your mind and your heart. And hopefully this verse is starting to come alive to you. Well, let's recite it aloud together. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Wonderful. This verse is very, very helpful, very informative, and very transformative, very instructive, and very revealing of what happens, particularly in salvation, and who we are in Christ, and who Christ is. And so when you meditate on verses like this for a prolonged period of time, you begin to see things, see the truth that is within the, the, the verse or the text. So continue to, to read these verses, reread them, um, the verses that we memorize each month, pray through them, and try to memorize them. They will be very helpful for your Christian life. And, uh, and especially they will be as we do this together as, as a church. Well, let's turn now to Luke's gospel and focus on the text that the Lord has given us this morning. And let's start, as we always do, by reading the text. Luke 16, 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, <clears throat> there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed, or I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, 
a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, what an incredible passage, and at first glance, uh, you may be thinking, what in the world is this passage saying? And I will tell you that this is actually one of the most clear and straightforward passages of Scripture that you will read, and I think that you will see that in due time. Now, what we're seeing here in this passage is Jesus telling his disciples to utilize their earthly resources to yield eternal results. That's why I've entitled this message, Utilizing Earthly Resources to Yield Eternal Results. Jesus is instructing his disciples to use their money to produce eternal fruit. He's making clear that true disciples are to use their money for eternal purposes, for eternal rewards, and with an eternal focus. Jesus is telling his disciples here to use their money in this world to accomplish specifically the salvation of more souls. That's what he's saying here. How are believers in this world to think about and to utilize their money? How are they... To, to think about this in this life. Disciples of Jesus, they know a few things, don't they? They know that money can't save them, right? They know that money can't satisfy them, right? We know that as disciples of Jesus, money is not to become an idol, meaning that which you focus on primarily, that which you which you live for or you serve or you love or you take pride in or you sinfully try to control or something that elicits fear in you or that brings an identity or a sense of security to your life. We know that the scripture says that the love of money actually leads to a lack of trust in God. And the love of money leads to foolish and sinful behavior. So, how are we as believers, disciples, the church, supposed to use our money? Well, we know that God gives it. And God gives the ability to earn it. Money is from God, and God gives it. And as we know, God gives more than we need, right? Because you got these things called savings accounts, which is more, uh, is obvious that God gives you more than you need, right? And he gives it to you for great purposes, some of which are to take care of your family, to give to the nation, 
which you have to do. Do that. It's a good idea. And, and the like, but the purpose of God giving our, uh, our resources to us is that we would use, it, use them for his glory, for his purposes. And like I said, the, specifically the salvation of souls. So God gives it, and God gives the ability to earn it, and as believers in Christ, we are to use them, those resources, the money, for his purposes. Deuteronomy 8 says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. God gives this money, but not to serve the money, for you to use it to serve him. And so here in Luke, Jesus is training his disciples in the fact that they are to utilize their money in ways that can facilitate more people ending up in heaven. And this is the new way. This is Jesus ushering in how believers in him are to think about their money, how they're to live after they're saved, after they're changed by the gospel in order to advance the gospel. Those who have listened come under the lordship of Jesus Christ and have trusted in their, his his salvation, are to use this money in this life for these purposes, for this purpose, the salvation of souls. Listen, disciples, followers of Christ, those who have repented of their sin, embraced the cost of following Jesus, are sent by Christ to make disciples, are to leverage, to utilize, to take initiative, to employ to make use of their wealth, not to bury it, not to be afraid, not to be hesitant, not to hold back for his purposes, specifically the salvation of souls, right? And the idea of wealth here, when you see that he gives the power to make wealth, the Bible uses that term just as money. It's not referring to a superabundant quantity, but it's rather just referring to the term of having money, right? And disciples are to use their wealth for God's purposes. There's a couple of things then that they're to avoid. First, they aren't to hold back. They're not to hold back their money, stuff it in a, in a jar and bury it because they're afraid to use it. And it's not supposed to be something that just sits there for a, a sense of security. They aren't to hold back. Wealth is to be employed for salvific purposes, for God-glorifying purposes, for good and effective purposes. It's not to be, again, stuck somewhere and so you can have a, a false sense of security and control in your savings. And secondly, they aren't to use it for worldly purposes. This is also something to be avoided. That you wouldn't use it on focusing on yourself. For you to just get all the pleasures of this life that you so desire. With the resources that God gives. And so Jesus is telling the disciples in this passage to utilize their earthly resources to produce eternal results. And let me tell you, that's the doctrine that's being made known here. And, and, and let me tell you, we need to take heed to this as Christ's disciples. The world, listen now, the world is eager, is enthusiastic, is ready, is willing. The world is fervent. The world is zealous. The world is excited. The world is premeditated to use their money to secure their earthly futures. 
And one of the foundational points of this passage is that unbelievers are more shrewd. They take more opportunity. They take full advantage to to use their money to to secure their earthly futures than believers do to utilize their resources, their money, to accomplish eternal purposes. That's one of the foundational points of this passage. Unbelievers are are more eager and, and more zealous and take full advantage and use the opportunity they have with their earthly resources, their money, to secure their earthly futures than believers are to employ their money to secure eternal purposes. And this is what Jesus is saying. How much more should believers, children of God, use their resources to advance the kingdom of God to secure eternal futures? I mean, think about this. We know God. We know that God gives the money. And we know that if we use it for his purposes, it will accomplish eternal ends. And unbelievers are more premeditated, more eager, take further initiative, take opportunity, take advantage of their money to secure their earthly futures. How much more should we as believers take this money and secure eternal futures? We should be just as shrewd, but for what really matters. Do you understand? Here's the difference. Look at this. Psalm 17. He writes, the psalmist writes this. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. Here's a description of the wicked. From men, deliver me from these men who are synonymous with the wicked by your hand, O Lord. From men, and this is the description of them, of the world whose portion is in this life. That's all they got. That's all they got. You fill their womb with treasure. You still give them resources, money. But what do they do with them? They're satisfied with children. And they leave their abundance to their infants. The goal of their life with their resources and with their money terminates in this life. I'm just going to make sure we have an inheritance to give to our children. Now, That's not a bad thing, but that's their end goal with their resources. As for me, look what he says. I shall behold your face in righteousness. My desire is for you, God. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied in your likeness. My goal is set on you, becoming like you, right? Philippians 3 says this. Their end, the people of this world, is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. (laughs) They take glory in what they should be ashamed of. Right? And their mind is set on what? Earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we invest. And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world is purposeful to use their money to secure their worldly futures. How much more should the children of God be intentional, determined, persistent, and sharp to use our money to secure results that will transpire in eternity? And are you ready for this? God desires for you to live this way, to eagerly use your resources for his kingdom. Do you understand we're in a war? And you got unbelievers eager to use their resources to secure their earthly futures. They're not hiding them in a jar. They're not afraid to use them. They're using them for all all they want. How much more should we as believers be eager to use these resources that God has given us for his purposes, to advance his kingdom, to fight this battle? 
to fight this war. That's why he's given them to us. And so this is Jesus' point. Now, I want to move into the divisions of this because the text is so clear. You can't deny what it's saying. And here's what the divisions do. The headings that I give you, which I typically call divisions, are just progressing through the text to make clear this main point that the text says. It's like an argument that's just moving forward and progressing, right? Before we do that, I just want to give you a tiny bit of context so you understand how we got to this place of this issue. And then we'll preview the points and just walk right through them. But let's establish ourselves in this text for just a moment. As we get into it, here's what happens. You begin to assess the context when you first read the passage of Scripture, and you try to understand, even especially by the first few words of the passage. You try to understand, what is this passage saying? And you do so a lot of times by the progression of thought, the the logical flow of the text. So if you want to say, how do I understand the main point? There's one main point of every literary unit in, in the Bible. What is, how do I understand this main point here? How am I supposed to get to this? How do you get to this? Well, one of the ways is you move through the logical flow of the text. You know what was behind it. You know what's coming in front of it or coming after it. And so therefore, you, you, it helps you to understand the main point of the section by connecting it. And we'll see in chapter 16, starting in verse 1, he says, he also said to, his, to the disciples. But what's tricky here is that doesn't that connection there doesn't always mean that this was directly after what he just said in the previous section. Luke could be placing this here as another teaching of Jesus. He also said to his disciples, doesn't necessarily connect us to the setting, right? And this could be confusing for a few reasons, this particular passage, because we are moving pretty hard turn, uh, making a pretty hard turn from the issue of salvation to the issue of money. And you're wondering, is Jesus here just in the same setting, switching gears, stopping on a dime and turning? Well, he could be. He has the right to do that. Or Luke, listen, listen, Luke could be taking a teaching of Jesus and placing it here because it fits thematically, right? You need to understand this, that what happens in the Gospels, right? What happens in the Gospels is not always chronological in the teaching. The, the, the biblical writers have complete freedom to take a teaching of Jesus or a, a situation that Jesus is in or one that the disciples are in and place it in the flow of the, of the text, and it's not necessarily chronological. It just uh, deals with the, the, the theme of this. But one thing that we can understand, listen, is that we are turning from the teaching of salvation to, and the teaching of the character of God, his joy in salvation, to the topic of money. Now, you might be tempted as you read this because we just talked about salvation. Listen, you might be tempted to look at this as some other metaphor, or an additional parable about salvation. But you got to be careful, because as you look very closely at this, that is not true. The application is clearly money. So we can understand that Jesus truly is, or at least Luke truly is, turning from the topic of salvation to the topic of what? Money. And this is under the divine guidance of the Holy Spirit, who is the true author of the Bible, right? So, listen, the gospel writers have no obligation to to treat this with any uh, chronological um, uh, progression. This can be conceptual rather than a temporal association. So, another way to say it, Luke's placement here could be thematic. Now, if you understand, why is Luke placing this here, or why is Jesus stopping on a dime and turning to this issue, right? Because this is clearly the teaching of the passage, right? Um, We know one thing is that Jesus is turning from speaking to the Pharisees to speaking to who? The disciples. That's clear. But is this the same setting? If it is, why is Jesus turning here? 
If it's not, why is Luke placing this here thematically? Why the abrupt change? Well, let me just give you a, a four possible connections. And this is to help you read your Bible so that you can get to the main point of this, right? There's, there's four things I think could, could be the explanation of this switch. Well, first, it can be as simple as this. There can be a, a switch from teaching on aspects of salvation to teaching on aspects of discipleship. It could be as simple as that. Jesus is moving from talking about aspects of salvation to aspects of Christian living. You understand? You with me? Okay, simple as that. Actually, you see a pattern starting in, back in chapter 9 where Jesus invites disciples through to salvation. He trains disciples and then he sends disciples. He does it with the 12 and the 72, and now he could be doing it. He's doing this with the general populace of disciples. He's invited them to salvation. He's now training them in discipleship, and he's going to send them when he, when he resurrects. So that can be the issue. Secondly, the possibility of the connection deals with the importance of the topic. Maybe Jesus is switching issues from salvation to money because money is an incredibly important topic. You understand? It could be the progression of just from salvation to discipleship. It also could be due to the importance of the issue. You've heard it said and rightly said that Jesus talks most on the subjects of salvation, hell, the kingdom, and what else? Money. So it could be dealing with the importance of the issue, right? Thirdly, Jesus could be connecting it this way, or Luke. That Jesus just got finished speaking of salvation, God's joy in salvation. And the idea here could be now that disciples are to utilize their resources to accomplish this salvation, which he just talked about. You understand? And lastly, fourth, we know that this is a connection, 100%, is that we witnessed in the previous chapters the hearts of the Pharisees, didn't we? about the salvation of repentant sinners? God has joy, and the Pharisees do what? You remember? They grumble. They say, why are you with sinners? And Jesus answers throughout the entire chapter of chapter 15, because God rejoices when a sinner repents and is saved. They grumble. And what we see is that their hearts do not align with Jesus' heart about salvation. Well, you know what else we see in this chapter? Is that their hearts do not align with Jesus' heart, with God's heart, about money either. Look at verse 14 of chapter 16. Look at here. After hearing this parable about money, look what the Pharisees do. The Pharisees who were what? Lovers of money heard all these things and they what? Ridiculed him. There's another connection. As we are seeing the Pharisees' hearts not aligned with God's heart about salvation, nor about what? Money. So, now... With these possible connections, with, these, with the possible shift of occasion, with the definite shift of subject, and with the definite shift of recipients, I can think we can just conclude this. Jesus, after talking about salvation, is now turning to the subject of money. And he is turning from speaking to the Pharisees and scribes to turning to speak to his disciples, right? You understand? So let's move into the division of this, okay? As I said at first glance, this might seem difficult to understand, but I can assure you, you are going to think this is one of the most clear passages of Scripture by the time that we're done. Here's our two headings. Number one, we're going to see the tale, verses one through eight. That's the story, or more specifically, the parable. And number two, we are going to see the teaching, and that's in verses 9 through 13. This is the application that follows the parable. Very simple. This is clean cut. Very simple and easy to understand. Now, under the teaching, there's going to be three uh, supportive points. And we're going to see Jesus give this teaching and then give some support about dealing with our money, number one, generously and intentionally, verse 9. Secondly, dealing with our money faithfully, verses 10 through 12, and thirdly, dealing with our money reverently, verse 13. 
So this is what we will see in the passage. The tale, then the teaching, and then some supportive elements of generously and intentionally, faithfully, and reverently. So to make these points clear, let's take them, what? One at a time. You ready? Verses one through eight. First, we see the tale. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my manager is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, what generally makes this passage difficult to interpret is that in this passage, Jesus and the master are commending the dishonest manager. If you're wondering if that's happening, that is happening in this passage. And the idea here is that Jesus is commending the shrewdness of the manager. This is, of course, a fictitious character that Jesus has made up. He invented this character. And he is commending the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In the parable, the master is not commending his dishonesty, but that certainly emphasizes his point as what you'll see. He is commending his shrewdness, his wide dealings to secure his own future, to take advantage of his opportunity, to, to, to uh, treat his money and to use his money in an opportune way, opportunistic way by comparison to believers who should be even more shrewd with their money. And remember, when interpreting a parable, not all the details should be pressed. You understand this? You have to interpret various genres of the Bible in various ways. And this, parables, every detail should not always be pressed. Every detail doesn't always represent a larger spiritual truth. You understand? So, these are fictitious characters, fictional characters that Jesus created to make a point. Now, let's make sense of this parable. Verse 1, Luke writes, And he also said to the disciples, once again, may not be necessarily connecting us to the occasion, but just another teaching of Jesus. But one we do see is that he's speaking to the disciples. And so the pattern has really gone like this. Jesus speaks of the cost of of following him. The sinners respond, right? And the Pharisees are observing. Then Jesus turns and he talks to the Pharisees and the scribes about God's joy and salvation. And the disciples are listening in. Then, as we move from that, uh, all those parables, we get here to Jesus speaking to the disciples, and now, once again, the Pharisees are listening in. It's just going back and forth, because we know they're listening in. In verse 14 of the same chapter, they grumble about what he said, even though he's speaking to who? The disciples. The Pharisees are listening, right? So that's what's happening here. It's just going back and forth, and we're watching this unfold. And so here in verse 1, it says this, as we see this parable starting, um, and it's about money and how we should use it, believers, for the salvation of souls, he says this, and we should utilize it, we should use it to accomplish salvations of souls, not keep it back. He says this, verse 1, there was a rich man who had a manager And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. There was a rich man. Obviously, this rich man had a lot of money. 
How do we know? Well, he first had enough to hire a manager, right? You, know, you got to have some money to hire a manager. And this, this manager administered his affairs, judging by what his debtors owed him, which we'll see in a few minutes as well, this man was wealthy. That's why he's called a rich man, right? So this man had a significant business, significant business. And it was reported that the manager was wasting the master's, what? Money. Now, the Greek verb here to use, that, that's used for it was reported is diabolo, which is related to the noun diabolos, which is, means slandered or accused of. This is the word which is, the trans, is translated devil, right? So it's a little side note. That's the meaning of devil, accuser, right? This is to accuse, and that's the word. And uh, the noun of that is translated devil. That's the name of the devil. It's accuser, and that's, by the way, what the devil does. He accuses us of being guilty before God because of our sin and that we deserve punishment justly because of our sin. Yet Christ has acquitted us of our guilt and we have believed in him for salvation and for forgiveness. And so Satan can no longer rightly accuse us of being guilty before who? God. Understand? So, the manager was accused of wasting. The Greek word meaning squandering. Okay? It's the same word that's used back in chapter 15, verse 13, describing the son and what he did with the inheritance that his father gave him. He wasted it. He did what? He squandered it. He used it for nothing worth anything significant. Understand? So in verse 2, we see, and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The rich man called the manager, fired him. You're done. He was no longer able to be a steward, but first, before he leaves, he's got to get one thing done. He has to give him the account of his management. So... There's some time at this point before the manager is let go. Give me an account and then leave. Understand? Verse 3. And the, young, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. So now we enter into this soliloquy, this monologue where the manager Knowing he is guilty and that his failure is going to be exposed, it's going to come, right? He's going to be fired. He's going to leave. He's going to be let go. He knows he's guilty. He asks himself, what shall I do? What shall I do because his master has taken away his management job? He claims to be unable to do a couple of things. And uh, these seem like his only two options. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. Now, Listen now, no doubt this was a common option, right, in the setting that was around him, the, the, the time in which he lived, the place in which he lived. People worked the land. He was a, accustomed to a different type of work, a desk job. He had soft hands, right? But the idea here when he says that he is not able, listen, the idea here is idiomatic. It refers to someone not liking their options, right? I'm not able to do this, right? It's not that he couldn't do it. It's that he didn't what? He didn't want to do it. The to dig, it was beneath him. So he says, and, and listen now, he's so used to doing dishonest work, not really going to work to do a job. He's been working the system that he doesn't really want to work, honestly. He doesn't want to dig. And so his only other option, because he's so used to working the system, not working honestly and making money, is, is to beg, right? Because he doesn't really want to work. So it's either work an honest job and 
and have to apply myself or, or go out on the street and beg, right? And he doesn't want to do that either because he's too proud. So, so neither one of these options seem really good to him. Basically, I just don't want to work, and so the only other option seems to be just asking people for money, and I don't really want to do that either, right? So this is, this is the idea here. The other option, if he's unwilling to take, partake in hard work, like manual labor, is to beg, and that's beneath him. These are the only two options that he can think of. And he doesn't really want to work, honestly. So he, uh, he goes about his own schemes. Verse 4, look at this. I have decided what to do. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he has this crafty idea, okay? He's got this crafty idea that will gain him favor with people. Here's the deal. And this is going to gain him favor for once he's released, right? Because his master's debtors still think that he's employed by who? The master. So he's going to take full advantage of this window of opportunity. He is going to make the most of this, this window, this, this opportunity that he has. He's going to eagerly and, and wisely and cleverly Take advantage of the opportunity that he has in order to secure his own future in this life, right? So he wisely comes up with a plan because right now he's still considered employed by his master's debtors to the outsiders. So he's going to use this opportunity to gain favor with these people. And once they learn of him being fired, they may think that this happened after his favorable, favorable dealings with them, right? And so then he's already gained by that point their favor. And, and then he gets, tells them he's gonna, you know, he's gonna tell them that he was let go, but he utilized his resources wisely to secure his own future because he knew that they in the Jewish society especially would have to return the favor, right? And when he's let go, they'll say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you were let go. Well, because of what you did for me, why don't you come into my home? And why don't you come maybe into my operation of business and work for me? So he is using his opportunity to secure his future. And he's doing so sharply. And he's making moves, right? That's what my Italian family say. Let's make some moves, right? Verse 5, he says this. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Now he summons the master's debtors one by one, and he asks them, how much do you owe them? Oh, my master. And Jesus here, the implication is he just giving us two examples. This is more than just two, two times, but he's just giving us two examples. There's going to be more than two people that he does this to, but he gives us these two examples here, and he asks them how much they owed his master. And this is probably not because they're unaware of how much they owe the master. He wants to manipulatively, a part of his shrewdness again, accentuate the fact that he's doing them what? A favor. How much do you owe my master? Right? And so now, verse 6, here's his first scheme. He said, a hundred measures of oil. This is the, the first debtor. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write, what, 50. Now, the first one ordered, uh, owed him a, a hundred measures of oil. And this was olive oil and uh, from the land of the master, obviously. And this was a large debt, extremely large debt. And again, this attests to the wealth of the master and to the large operation of the debtors. Because here's what happens. He says, how much do you owe? And he says, the first one says, verse 6, 100 measures of oil. Now, you understand, a liquid measure of oil is called a bath. Okay? So that's one standard, one liquid, standard liquid measure. He owes him 100 measures of oil. One standard liquid measure is called a bath. One bath is equivalent to 8.75 gallons. So 100 baths would be equal to 
875 gallons. Good. Got some teachers in the room, probably. Which was yield of about 150 olive trees. And this would be worth 1,000 denarii. And the average income of the people of this day for a day's work was one denarius. So this was worth about three and a half years of salary. This is what he owed him. And the manager cuts it in half. The debt is immediately relieved. That guy's pretty happy, huh? So he gains favor with this man. You understand? Secondly, verse 7, what we read, is that then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write what? 80. So the master repeats the clever process with the second example. The time, this time for this particular one, he owes, the debtor owes a hundred measures of wheat. Now the standard measure of wheat is not called a bath, it's called a core. And one core is equivalent to about 12 bushels or 400 liters. So 100 measures of wheat would be about 1,200 bushels or 40,000 liters. So one core was worth about 30 denarii. So 100 cores would be equal to 3,000 denarii. 30 denarii, 100 cores, which was about eight and a half years of salary. So, this was a significant debt. The manager reduces this by 20% instantly. You're free, right? Then, in the parable, the unexpected happens, which is just, by the way, extremely common in Jesus' parables. He sets it up, and then he gives a shocking ending, which drives home his, his what? His point, right? Here's what he says, verse 8. He says... The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. The master commends him, meaning this. The master praised him. Now, this is confusing. He was dishonest. He let go of some of his money. He cut the, the debts in half. I mean, you know, and the fact that the master commends this dishonest manager is usually where the confusion comes with understanding this. But can I tell you, this is exactly what makes his point. This man is immoral and dishonest, and he is what? Shrewd. He is immoral and dishonest, and he is shrewd. And Jesus is making the point that the unbelievers of this world are what? Immoral and dishonest, yet they are what? Shrewd. That's the point. He is showing the, um, the, 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 the sinful people, the lost people, unbelievers, immoral people, are more shrewd with their resources to accomplish their earthly futures, even though they're immoral, even though they're dishonest, even though they are not working this for the purpose of godliness and using their resources, then believers are and utilizing their resources for eternal purposes. This is the point. All the focus is on the shrewdness. He's worldly, but he's shrewd. Listen, he acted wisely with keen insight. He worked the situation to his advantage. He took advantage of the opportunity he secured his future. He took initiative. He was resourceful. He used what he had for a great benefit to himself. He gained from how he used the resources at his disposal, right? He wasn't fearful or hesitant or cautious in a way that, that was uh, short-sighted. He was far-sighted. He secured his own future. He was zealous, and therefore he gained by doing so. He wasn't like the, uh, like the manager who is condemned in the parable of the one who hid the money because he was afraid because he knew people didn't like his master. And sometimes that's 
what we do. But he proved to be an unbeliever. And sometimes as believers, we just hide this money in a jar on the ground because we're afraid for whatever reason. Especially afraid because we know people don't like our who? Our master. Right? So far be it from us to be eager to use these resources to advance our master's purposes and multiply it. So verse 8, Jesus makes his point, the second half, very clear. He gives a necessary explanation of his point. He says this, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of what? Light. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He was immoral, but he was shrewd. And what Jesus is saying is, the sons of this world are more shrewd with their resources than believers are. Here's the explanation. You ready? The sons of this age, referring to those of this what? World. Unbelievers, sinners, those outside the kingdom of God, are more shrewd to utilize their money for their earthly futures, listen, then dealing with this generation, verse 8, it says, uh, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation, this world, right? Then the sons of who? Light, this is referring to the children of God, believers, Christians, the church is, to facilitate their money to use it for eternal results. And the sons of light. That's Christian. Those are the Christians. The point is, God's children should be just as diligent to use their money to produce eternal results. Do you understand? Pretty straightforward. Christians should apply their resources to serve God, to advance the kingdom, to secure people's eternities, as much as secular people utilize their money to secure their earthly futures. Right? Unbelievers, can I tell you something? Unbelievers are often more skilled and more diligent to invest in their temporal future than believers are to invest in eternal futures. Believers are, unbelievers are often more shrewd. Believers are to be more shrewd. And can I tell you, this will educate your conscience. You know that we're in a war? Who should be the more shrewd ones? Think about this. This should educate your conscience. The Bible educates our conscience. We have a conscience about things until the Bible educates our conscience about these things. You understand? And then we change from what we have in our conscience to what the Bible says our conscience should be. Right? So you take alcohol and you say, well, no one should drink it. Well, that's not what the Bible says. But the Bible does have more cautions about alcohol than it does encouragements. We should understand that there are dangers there. Right? So you take what you said and said and say, hey, and no one should drink a drip of alcohol. And you say, well, that's not what the Bible says. So I got to move to where the Bible says. Now, I don't move to where I'm sinful. Of course not. But my conscience needs to be educated by the Bible. Can I tell you, unbelievers also, if you go into this, are more skilled in a variety of different areas. Usually music. Business? I mean, you watch a movie, and it's a Christian movie, and you're expecting it to be what? Kind of badly done. (laughs) Right? And I think this applies. How much more should believers be diligent in all that they do in every area of their lives to, to secure eternal salvation of souls? knowing that we know the one who supplies these gifts. We know the one who gives these resources. And we know whose purposes we serve. And we should be diligent, not self-centered, not fleshly, but not afraid and not hesitant, not uneducated biblically, realizing we're in a war and that these are spiritual resources and weapons used to advance the light of Christ on this earth. So, this is what Jesus is saying. The shift is from the shrewdness of the manager to the shrewdness of the sons of this world who are also moral to the conclusion that the sons of light should be even more taking their opportunity to use this money. I mean, think about this manager. Think about it. What did he do with it? 
he, he, he figured it out. He went after it. He got his, these, this money together to secure this, this future, right? He said, I, I know what I'm going to do, right? And I'm going to be wise with this, clever with this for the advancement of, of his future. How much more should we be yet not sinful or immoral like him? Use it for God's glory, which leads us to number two. Jesus' explicit application. So we have the tale, and now we have, secondly, the teaching, verses 9 through 13. And uh, we'll close with, uh, with this information, which is pretty straightforward. Verses 9 through 13 says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? If you have not been faithful in what, that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let me tell you this meaning. Verse 9, he says, and I tell you. This is also could be said, and I say to you. This emphasizes the significance of what he's about to say. I gave you the parable. I told you the point. Here's the application. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. You understand? Consider this very carefully. And what Jesus is saying here is, utilize your money to facilitate the salvation of souls. The earthly people, the unbelievers, are more shrewd than believers. You, utilize this money. Utilize it. For the salvation of souls, so that when the end comes, when death comes, you will be welcomed into eternity by people you've used your resources to save, right? Here's the point here. Here's what he's saying. He says, verse 9, and I tell you, make friends. You know what make friends means? Make friends, (laughs) right? Make friends. Reach people. Build relationships. Let yourself be known in the community. Get work to get to know more people, right? Do that to reach new people. Do this, it says, verse 9, by means of unrighteous wealth. You know what that means? The money of this world. How are believers to use the money that they get in this world, right? We are getting money in this world. God has given us the ability to gain it, and we have it. And it's for this, uh, it's in this life, Right? By the means of unrighteous wealth, meaning this is how you are to use the money in this world. Make friends. So that, here's the purpose, when it fails, meaning money will not last forever, but the results that you use it for can last forever, right? When those, when either by death or by the end of the world, by the return of Christ, whether, whatever it may be, when the money fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling, meaning this. These people who you've used your resources for, for their salvation, will be there when you get to heaven. And just maybe, who knows? Maybe they'll be there and, they'll, and you'll realize all the people that your resources were used for to get to heaven. Maybe this is, they'll just be there. Maybe God will show you and say, look at all the people who are in heaven now because of how you've used your resources and used your money. But that's the meaning here, the eternal dwelling, heaven. They're going to be there welcoming you into heaven. Because you, so use your money to make friends in this life with the money of this world so that when you get to heaven, more people will be what? Saved in heaven. That's the point. Straightforward as can be, right? Just as the manager used, shrewdly used his resources and his opportunity to make earthly friends in order to secure his, what? Future. So believers are to use their resources to facilitate evangelism, the preaching of the word, discipleship, through the gospel to secure eternal friends and secure eternal futures. And they'll be waiting when you get to heaven. We should eagerly use our money for these purposes to accomplish the salvation of souls. Can I tell you something? And this is not to make us at all the heroes of the story. 
But let me just tell you briefly. When we moved here, can I tell you something? We didn't even, we didn't know how we were going to survive. Right? I mean, we had a, a few families that came here. And, and we didn't know. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, I didn't even see my house before we bought it. I've I just looked at it on a, on a FaceTime of my real estate agent. I said, and we had kids, multiple, and families, and people who were already giving up their job, right, to come. And they were going to be, they had kids. And we put everything in to be used of the Lord, to secure earthly futures of people, right? To, I mean, we're going to use this for his purposes and trust him. And you know what? Think of the amount of people over the years who are going to be in heaven now because we came here. I mean, these two services are both packed with people and you may not have gotten saved recently, but you know what else? There will be a lot of people who have come back to biblical faithfulness because of this church. Right? And let me ask this. Absolutely. Let me ask this. What if we didn't? What if we didn't? What if we were hesitant? What if we were afraid? What if we didn't? So many people will be in heaven because we decided to come here and we're not even close to done. Think over the next 50 years if the Lord lets us live like that long. How many people will come into heaven because of this church? That's the idea that Jesus is saying here. Think about your life. Think about your life. Think about how many people can be in heaven if you would utilize your resources for salvation of souls. And then think about this. What if you don't? This is what Jesus is saying here. Now, let me just close with this in just a couple minutes. There's about three small principles here. They're not small in significance, but they're just pretty easy to understand that Jesus gives, and I think it further explains how some people say, well, Luke just kind of tacks on a whole bunch of jumbled principles at the end of this. That doesn't make any sense. These, all of these explain what Jesus is meaning further. It, it helps to understand this. It tells us how. They're like bumpers on a lane. Number one, believers are to do this generously and intentionally. Verse nine, we've already covered this, but look at this. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You are to, simply put, use your money for the sake of others' benefits. You know what that means? Generously. And you have a purpose of them being in heaven. You know what that means? Do it intentionally, right? So generously and intentionally, right? Number two, what we see the second principle is use it faithfully, faithfully. The point is here that you use your resources for lifelong service to Jesus. Verses 10 through 12, the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, one who's dishonest and very little is also dishonest and much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? The idea here is this. You steward your money for eternal purposes and so prove to be true disciples. Let me tell you, this is not cause and effect language. This is axiomatic, meaning this. It just reveals a reality. Okay, those who are faithful in little are the ones who are, one who is faithful in little is also faithful in what? How you deal with this insignificant thing like money, whether you use it for Christ's purposes, reveals whether or not you are a disciple of Christ. It reveals the bigger issue. You understand? This is not cause and effect. This is axiomatic. It just reveals a reality. It's self-evident, Right? Here's what it says also. He who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you, are, if you don't use your resources for the cause of Christ to advance his kingdom, but to advance the world, who do you think you belong to? It's just a self-evident truth. You understand? Then, verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, which is the money on this what? 
earth? Who will entrust you true riches? You think you're just going to have a heart change once you get to heaven and want to be with Jesus forever when you've been on this earth the whole time using your money to serve other gods other than Jesus? So if you have the money as just an example and a, and a revealer of when you get, you know, the one who, who obviously serves Christ in this life will be the one who has entrusted the riches of heaven in eternity. It's just self-evident. It's revealing. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, which is God's, the money he's given you to serve him, who will give you that which is your own? You're not going to get to heaven and have uh, eternity uh, full of riches because you don't belong to him. And it's evident by the way that you treat your money. Number three, you are to use, and let me just say something here. Some people say, um, you know, Man, if I was in a different situation, then I would utilize it. Can I tell you? Um, your situation's not the issue. Your heart is. The woman who had nothing gave what? Everything. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Number three, we're to use it reverently. Verse 13, no servant can serve what? Two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other, love the one or be devoted to one and despise either. You cannot serve God money. With your resources, you can either serve the cause of Christ to secure salvations, or you can use it to uh, be an end and a God in and of itself. Right? You can't serve both. How are you going to do it? What are you going to use it for? Right? That's the point here. Because can I tell you if, you, if you serve Christ, there will inevitably come a time when you will have to decide whether or not you're going to serve Christ or money. It's not, you will, it will not work that you will serve money your whole life and try to serve Christ. It will not work. At some point, you are going to have to deny the service of money in order to stay faithful to Christ. The time is going to come at some point, right? You are going to have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And the same is true on the other side. If you serve money, it will inevitably come that you will deny Christ because money is your priority, Right? whether it be with how you act, whether it be with how you spend your time, etc. So, conclusion, and we're a few minutes over. Believers are to utilize their earthly resources to yield eternal results. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word here. We need your word to teach us. God, let us be changed, convicted. Let us be um, uh, in your providence, you gave us this text today. Right, so we just walk verse by verse through your book. And, um, and you want us to utilize our resources for eternal reward. And I pray that we would for your glory. Don't let it be said of us that the people of this earth are more shrewd than we are. God, that we would use our resources for the salvation of souls who will welcome us into heaven. I pray that you'd make it true of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.